Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Happy New Year to everybody. This is a shorter episode than normal and we're going to be talking to you about some of the books that we've read and enjoyed in 2017. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. So as a little seasonal extra, uh, we've got our super full panel here, Helen, Aaron, Chris, Chris, me, to talk about some things that we've enjoyed reading or even things that we haven't actually had time to read yet but are going to enjoy reading that we think you might enjoy too. Helen, something you've read, doesn't have to be super politics politics, that you've really liked. I really liked uh, Dermot McCulloch's book on the history of the Reformation, which is what I've been wading my way through. So when you say wading, that already makes it sound a bit heavy going. It's long. But it's a page turner, right? I'm not saying that it's necessarily a page turner if you're not interested in the history of the Reformation, but it's after all the 500th anniversary of Martin um, Luther's 95 theses. And I think that there's quite a lot of, not say parallels, but in terms of the political world in which we live in, but certainly some at least semi-parallels. And this is a time of enormous political turbulence in terms of, in some sense, the breakdown of the relationship between the ideal and the real in the Catholic Church. A rebellion that Luther leads against that turns in a political direction of which he had no intention to go down whatsoever. It becomes a class-based politics in many ways. There's the peculiar position of England in the story of this. It goes on a rather singular journey, shall we say, in relation to what happens in the rest of the continent. And I think that people have made some parallels that I don't think are necessarily, you know, like very persuasive about Brexit and the break from Rome in um, 1533. But I think there is some parallel to be seen in the difficulties that uh, Henry had Henry VIII, I mean, in uh, negotiating a way to what he wanted, which was a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, and actually only succeeding with a a breakaway in the problems that David Cameron faced in terms of negotiating a reformed European Union and ending up precipitating us out of the European Union. So who is Luther in our version of the story? That is an interesting question. Um, I'll have an answer to that. Uh, You can give an answer. Who do you think Luther is then? Uh, I don't know. But um, John Norton, who we've had on this podcast before, and we're going to try and get him back maybe to talk about this in the new year, did publish his 95 theses about the tech revolution. And the church that he wants to help us escape is called Facebook. They're definitely worth reading too. We'll post a link to that as well. I've been reading Victor Cha's book, Power Play, which is about the history of U.S. alliance formation in Asia after the Second World War and why the U.S. alliance system in Asia looks so different from the one that it created in Europe. And traditional explanations for this had things to do with the various nature of the threat of communism compared to Western Europe as it was in East Asia. And there's also been explanations that are relevant to race, the way that Americans thought about the capacity of Asians to be reliable allies 
allies versus Western Europeans who are part of the same quote-unquote civilization. But Cha looks at this from a much more I would say abstract cost-benefit analysis and specifically looks at how afraid the United States was of getting entrapped in Asia, or as MacArthur said after the Korean War, right, don't get involved in a land war in Asia, right? And this was the overriding concern, and it helps explain why we adopted this kind of hub-and-spoke system that was as much about kind of managing our allies there as it was deterring communist threats from emerging and injuring our interests in Japan and Taiwan and Korea and elsewhere. And I'm really reminded of this because Cha also was a name tossed about for candidate for a U.S. ambassador to South Korea, though he's not in that position. But I think it would be very good if somebody with his level of expertise and capacity for critical thinking was in that chair right now. Or if anyone was in that chair. Or sure. Or you know, right. Just there like is, there a bologna a, sandwich a, might be because you, you told us there is no there is no that was about a month ago. I haven't seen one. Appointed. I haven't seen word that anyone's been appointed to that position though maybe nobody wants it you know because the bologna sandwich they've been offered is not big enough chris or chris people always suspect when people are asked to plug things that they're covertly plugging books by their friends or their relatives uh, so i'm going to be completely shameless that the the exciting publication in my household this christmas is that my wife's book in search of the phoenicians is coming out so my wife uh, josephine quinn an academic classicist And it's a terrific book, but even if much of it is a technical monograph in ancient history, exploring the complexities of interpreting epigraphical material in North Africa and elsewhere, the book also is of interest to people like us who are interested in politics. One of the classics of nationalism scholarship is Anthony D. Smith's book, The Ethnic Origins of Nations, arguing that although nations are a a modern construct, They rest on ethnic roots that go much, much deeper into the past. And Josephine's book nicely turns this on its head. Its unofficial subtitle might be The Nationalist Origin of Ancient Ethnicities, and the way, looking at the ways in which in the early modern period, so the same period that uh, Helen has been reading about with Reformation, uh, how in the early modern period, intellectuals on the fringe of courts in England and France and so on just invent these ancient peoples and start telling stories of them as part of a politics that's leading up to quite strong claims about who the British are or who the French are and legitimacy claims of, uh, of monarchies, including the Tudor monarchy in England. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of, I was going to fo- ask a follow-up question, but I, yeah. Um, Chris, you can plug... No. <laughs> I have no, uh, no books to plug. No, I was thinking about this, outstanding books that I've read recently, non-fiction books. Um, or fiction. I'm going to do a novel in a minute. In terms of the non-fiction, it's been a series of, I think, uh, minor disappointments. Uh, there's nothing that really stands out. In, in all the books, in all the world? Well, it's also that I don't read as much as I would like, so there's a long pile of to-be-read books, some of which may be, may be outstanding. What's the one you're most looking forward to reading? Probably the Shipman series of books. The one on Brexit, which has been there for a long time and I've not read, but then there's the one on the general election, which I think is good fun. Yeah, which describes that thing which we all want to know, like we talk about, we did last week about what the exit poll was like for us, but what was it like? That's right. What was it like for them? From the inside. But uh, the one that I really wanted to talk about was something which, in terms of fiction, I've been doing a sort of review of some of the post-war British fiction by female writers. And the one that's 
I think really struck me was um, by Margaret Drabble, The Millstone. And it's one that I think was published in 1959. And it's a story about of a young woman who's, I think, in her very early 20s. She's completing her PhD and she falls pregnant unexpectedly. And contrary to all the received wisdom of her peers, uh, she decides to keep the baby. And what struck me most about it, I suppose, is how familiar that world is which is a kind of strange thing. Maybe it's the quality of the writing. But there's nothing particularly alien about the period, about the the commentary, about the attitudes. And so in some ways there's something enduring about British society, if that's true. The other thing is is the nature of the National Health Service, which I think was probably a big part of what she had in her mind. So another book that I read, or I'm reading, is Citizen Clem, a biography of Clement Attlee, associated with the creation of the the National Health Service and this great institution. But the thing that comes out of Drabble's book, which is really quite shocking, is the sheer inhumanity of the early NHS, particularly in the relationship to patients, and in this case, single mothers. It's a shocking book in many ways. Uh, It's very short, very easy to read, and uh, I would recommend it to everybody. So I'm also going to talk about a novel, the one that stayed with me most, including in thinking about politics, this is not a very cheery one, but hey, is The Siege by Helen Dunmore, which is about the siege of Leningrad, which is just one of those events that I'd never thought about because it's almost impossible to think about what it would be like to experience it because it's just unimaginable. It's just this kind of monolithic thing that happened. It's sort of an important thing in world history, but to be on the inside of it, And she tells the story of that siege, what it would be like to live through it for one family. And it is completely, it's not a cheery book. It is completely terrifying, but it's also completely gripping. But the thing that it slightly changed for me was when you finish it and the novel ends with a sort of account of the post-siege world, it gives you a feeling, there's such a feeling of relief at having sort of got through the siege that post-war Leningrad, which seen from any other perspective would have been this awful drab, dour place to live seems like this kind of haven of prosperity and security and of course for some people it would have been it's it does that thing that novels do and nothing else can do which allows you to imagine a world that you could never have imagined and see it completely differently I'd never thought of 1950s Leningrad as paradise but for some people I mean the the entire city is suffering post-traumatic stress disorder so there's there's that too but still that just that the security of a city that functions after this experience, which is the closest you can get to a city simply ceasing to exist. It then persuaded me to read other novels by her. They're all good. Um, and there's one, the most recent one, which is called Birdcage Walk, which is about reconstructing a kind of intellectual milieu, the late 18th century of radicals in and around Bristol. She's an amazing novelist, the range of it. And again, it just takes you into a world I'd never so I thought about the French Revolution a lot I never thought about what it would be like to be experienced by house builders in Bristol Helen Dunmore great writer we'll tweet links to all the books that we've mentioned today at tppodcast underscore do follow us there it's the start of a big new year of politics and we will be talking about all of it so please join us for that every week my name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics The other joke we were to tell about Alabama was, you know, how the toothbrush was invented in Alabama? I'm not sure I want to know how the toothbrush was invented in Alabama. If it invented in any other state, it would be called the teeth brush. <laughs> no, then it's quite good. But you just got the one chunk of it. <laughs>